Hi, my name is Saul, and this is the story of London. In the last part, I kind of zoomed over the history of Roman London, the settlement of Londinium. Crucially, perhaps controversially, I said that I feel that Roman London isn't really part of the story of the city, because of various reasons, but the big one was, it died. Roman London, the city of Londinium, ceased to be. Sometime around the year 450 or so, it basically stopped being a functioning town and started a whole new career as a ruin. London, the Roman version, was dead. And at some point, sometime after the year 550 and over the following century, London was about to be reborn. A new tribe of people, also foreigners, were to begin building a community by the River Thames. This one, however, this one would stick. The story of London now reaches Chapter 3, The Birth of Ludenwick. Now, before I start, I have to give a bit of a warning about a lot of what's going to follow in this section. And there's going to be perhaps a little bit too much speculation for some people coming up. Some listeners may find it annoying at the a lack of precision and specificity. There's a reason for this, and it's a good one. We are now in what is annoyingly called the Dark Ages. Historians only call it the Dark Ages, by the way because the term, the geopolitical instability that followed the decline of the Roman influence in the not very important hinterlands of its old empire, specifically the western north of its territory, and the social, cultural and political impact of the arrival of Asiatic tribes and settlers from the east into the region, <sighs> is a bit of a mouthful. This is an era where historical sources are, I'm afraid, light on the ground, and we're working out what went on is challenging, but not impossible. The main problem with this era is that we also have to deal with centuries of utter nonsense added by later historians, with their own agendas to fulfil, their own axes to grind, and their very time and space specific neuroses to manifest. It's one thing to try and work out what happened in the 4th century. It's another to try and work out what happened in the 4th century when also trying to deal with 9th century propaganda versions of those events embellished in the 14th century, which then someone reinforced in the 18th century to justify why they should rule the world. I wish I was kidding. During the research for this, I actually read a history of London written round about the 1930s, I think it was, that pointed out that after the Romans left Britain, their empire soon fell, and then included the words... Let that be a lesson to those of you who say we should give up control of Singapore and India. Sheesh. I mentioned this because in the next part coming up, we are mostly sure about what follows, but not to a level of detail we would like, and we have an awful lot of stuff and nonsense to also excavate to hope to get to the truth. We're going to talk about the gradual conquest of England, and especially Eastern England, by the Germanic peoples, 
who we end up eventually just calling the Anglo-Saxons, even if they were actually a mixture of Saxons and Jutes and some Franks and some Britons who married in and, and the tribe called the Angles and uh, all kind of mixed into one. And I'm explaining all of this now because in order to understand how London was to be reborn, we need to understand what actually happened when the Germanic tribes came from Europe to the former Roman province of Britannia. The 5th and 6th centuries were an amazing era for Britannia. I mean, not very nice to be there, but to look back on, stunning. It was a chaotic coming together of a range of ethnicities and races and change. That was its only constant. It was an era of geopolitical instability and change. Whatever the national situation, wait 10 years, it's going to be different. We have this impression that when the Saxons turned up, they came as vast hordes filled with warriors and a massive campaign of conquest took place, where large capital armies led by Saxon warlords drove the Britons into the wild places of the island, like Cornwall and Wales, yes? The problem is, that didn't happen. There's not one shred of evidence to say that happened. It was a lazy fabrication created by people at the end of this process, looking back and seeing what their world was, and thinking its coming was as inevitable as the dawn. But it was always more complex than this. It doesn't help that this era, the one we're talking about, was basically the age of King Arthur, the imaginary symbol of the land, the dreamlike king invented to give a narrative to the events that followed. And yet, in truth, the actual sequence of events was not only more realistic, it was more profound and more meaningful than stories about some guy called Vortigern supposedly granting the Isle of Thanet to mercenary barbarians, provided they defend the nation. Yeah. Look, there were ships carrying people out of Europe and into Britain. And the men and women on these ships bore the name of the alien tribes who were arriving. Names like the Angles, the Jutes, the Saxons, possibly mixed in with a few Franks here and there. And they did arrive, coming over the wine-dark waters, and they did begin to settle. And their arrivals did change the composition of the land. We see from the year 450 onwards evidence of villages emptying, specifically in the southeast. And these residencies, which had been inhabited by Britons, began to be abandoned. But around these sites, we find no evidence of mass violence or of genocide. Rather, the clue suggests a mixture of things in place of this simplistic narrative of warfare. We find evidence of climate changes that made lands in the west more fertile, and the residents in the east leaving these less resilient places to the newcomers. And we also know to the southeast that people were aware that across the waters of the channel, new nations were arising, in particular the violent and rather expansionary Frankish kingdoms, and it was possibly out of fear of attack and raid that 
people decided not to be where they could be attacked in raid, and these combined factors, we think, drove the residents westward. We also see that while many did move west, many stayed. In the regions that were to become politically and then culturally Germanic, a study of the genetics of the residents of these regions show they were still mostly Britons, as many stayed as left, it seems. Added to that, the Germanic tribes people who settled here were mostly not warriors. Oh yes, there were mercenaries that sailed amidst them, professional soldiery, this is true. But on the whole, these settlers were poor farmers, seemingly fleeing the utter carnage taking place in Europe. They were refugees, the flotsam and jetsam of northern Europe, who sailed west to find somewhere in the old Roman province that they could eke out a living from. Most of the Saxons who settled in the land were dirt poor, their original homes little more than hovels. Of course, there was conflict between the communities, but it was a low-intensity one, a bushfire war, fed by ignorance and bigotry, interspersed with eras of relative calm on both sides, the mainstay of the combatants were often just farmers, neighbours, normal men and boys who find themselves, either because of anger or because of a sense of community, taking sides in battles. We know as the Germanic tribes settled and expanded, there were moments of intense viciousness, the kind that reminds us of conflicts in places like Bosnia-Herzegovina, where neighbour turned on nearby neighbour was the kind of mundane evil that only such wars could generate. We know as time went by, Saxons would flee the island, flocking to the new nations of Europe with tales of atrocity and murder, and we also know at the same time that Britons would also flee the island, settling in such large numbers in France that an entire region was named after them, Brittany. So then, in 457, the quasi-mythical figure of a man called Hengrist, the Saxon descendant of the great god Wodan, apparently, supposedly killed 4,000 natives of Kent and drove many of the survivors supposedly to London. Is this the battle that the Venerable Bede referred to much later, the one that drove out the population of London? We don't know, but we know that this was the foundation of the Saxon Kingdom of Kent, or the Jutish Kingdom of Kent. We know that by 491, so a generation later, the Germanics had established their second kingdom, the Kingdom of the South Saxons, or Sussex. And it does seem to be that the conflict followed the new settlers. First it was in Kent, and then Kent became calm, as the conflict moves to Sussex, and then in time Sussex calms down, and a new polity arose from those desperate refugees, the Kingdom of the West Saxons, or Wessex. However, most significantly, in the year 540, there is an outbreak of the plague, and the evidence seems to suggest that the native Britons were more susceptible to it than these newcomers from the continent. And certainly, just seven years later, when the plague finally reached the heartland of the Britons, Wales, they referred to it as the Great Mortality. 
Was that really what was responsible for the change in Britannia? The low-intensity ethnic conflict going on had seen 50 years during which there had been less than 10 battles, the fighting done by non-professionals, neighbours and farmers against the same. Was the coming of this disease the reason why the Saxons and the Angles began to become dominant, not via conflict, but via the simple art of surviving? Certainly by 550 we begin to see the creation of a ruling class, and with it a hegemonic culture began to arise. It was a mixture of Jute, Saxon, Angle and Britonic, and we simplify it and just later call it Anglo-Saxon culture. But as this culture emerges, political differences arise as each new polity and each old domain begins to push for things that make them unique. And this is the era into which London was born. So, London was then a ruin, a wrecked Roman city, deserted if not totally abandoned. But in time, people were drawn to the region. I mean, of course they were. Even the newcomers would know that this place had once been the most important city on the island. And thus they came, establishing their own version of the settlement, whose name bore that ancient Celtic origin also. They called it Luden. Or to be precise, Ludenwick. The purpose of the settlement, I believe, is exposed in that very name. The last part of it, W-I-C, Wick. It's the old English word for trading centre or market. Literally, the place was called Ludenwick, the London Market. It was not, however, located in the remains of Londinium. While you could suggest that placing their new town behind the existing city walls would have been a sensible idea, given the relative geopolitical instability of the region, there are good reasons why the early settlers of the Saxon version of London didn't do that. And no, no, it's not because they believed it was haunted or built by magic or any one of a series of nonsensical ideas I've actually had told to me over the years. Yes, the people of the era were superstitious and less advanced than us, but do you know what? They were not stupid. Genetically, we are in no way smarter than they were. No, the most likely explanation for not establishing a community within the walls of the old Roman city were probably pragmatic. Living within those walls meant you didn't just need to build homes. You had to fix the place up. It'd been deserted for decades, maybe a century. You had to cut back on the plant life, restore the old buildings, clear the debris. If you wanted to fix the roof of some old Roman villa, that meant you'd have to fix its walls. But if you wanted to fix the walls, that meant you probably had to sort out the weakened foundations. That's a lot of work. Cities require a lot of surplus labour. They require a large workforce to do over. If all you have is a slow drip of residents coming into the region over the years, it wouldn't make any sense and it just wouldn't be possible. 
It's far easier then to just build nearby. Build homes from wood and stone close to the old Roman ruins, but somewhere where you could just build and not waste time on some mammoth clear-up job. These new inhabitants didn't avoid the remains of Londinium. We know they kept cattle within old large buildings, and behind those walls they did a bit of farming. And places like the old Roman amphitheatre, well, they used to hold their folk moots there, their community meetings. So they used it, they travelled into the ruins, it's just that it was easier for all concerned to just build new than waste energy rebuilding old. Especially as the sole purpose of the town seems to have been to trade, even in its earliest days when, as a nation, Nobody had any currency, rents were paid in food. Even then, Ludenwick was seemingly built to trade. So then the location of this town was roughly where the River Thames passes beyond what was the River Fleet and begins to turn south to what would be, some centuries later, be called Westminster. There, on a bend in the river, this market was created, one mile west of those old Roman ruins. Today, we call the area it was centred upon Covent Garden. Here was eventually located a large Saxon community. Houses and halls covered a region that grew surprisingly quickly. Its central focus seemed to be the long, lazy bend in the river where goods could be offloaded easily onto the foreshore this stretched from where the National Gallery stands today in the west to Aldwych in the east, and from this region backwards into the land developed a town that grew and was filled with the new residents of the island. We have found the kilns they used and shards of the pottery these created. We've found the everyday debris of their lives, their dress pins, combs, shattered glass beakers, dirty jewellery. We have found the remains of the weights they used in their looms and the stone tools they used for building. We have found the site where they butchered animals, it's off what we today call the Strand, and where today sits Trafalgar Square, we find back then farm buildings. Ludenwick wasn't established in a vacuum all by itself, you see, it was surrounded by a score of little farming communities and hamlets, places called Fulham, Lambeth, Stepney, Kensington, Paddington, Islington and more, although they weren't called exactly that back then, we are talking Old English. Ludenwick became the market for these places and for others from further away. Here you could take your excess food and find buyers. It was this Ludenwick that the Venerable Bede, many years later, described as, and I quote, on the banks of the Thames, a trading centre for many nations who visit it by land and sea, unquote. And the many nations is the important point. Ludenwick was all about many nations, even now, in its earliest days. Why? Well, the first reason was geographically obvious. I mean, the location of the town was the natural place for the arrival of goods 
from the sea via the river. Nearby had been Roman docks that had seen the produce of a long-lost empire pour into it. Goods from all over the world had easy access to the inland region of the island via this river, so it was a natural place to capitalise upon this. But away from the river, the region itself was ideally situated to take advantage of several new nations that were being born around it. I mean, think about it. You had the Duke-dominated Kent to the south and east of London, just across the river. The Kentish nation was the first of the foreign-created nations and had a long history from amidst these new peoples. Kent was also the nation with the closest links across the channel to the Frankish kingdom, and that cast a bit of a shadow across the land. Meanwhile, the Saxons had established their expansionist nations across the whole of the south of what would become England, as well as Wessex and Sussex somewhere in the west, and in these early days we cannot exactly say where their borders precisely were. The community of Ludenwick was built under the original jurisdiction of the rulers of the new nation of the East Saxons, or Essex as we know it today. And yet these Saxon nations, while they were the same peoples, were very rarely united. But to the north of this region was the other tribal confederacy, the one that's often overlooked and who was somehow seen as subordinate to the Saxons, the Angles, the English. The Angle kingdoms were separate. Towards the east you had nations like East Anglia and Lindsay, and towards the west a large amalgam of Germanics and Britons coming together in a polity that would be eventually known as Mercia. While there were a score of other nations and tribes on the island at this time, these are the ones we need to focus on. Ludenwick was located kind of in the middle of many of these, and that, and its reputation as a centre of importance granted by the decaying Roman runes one mile west to it, that meant it grew. As Bede said, it was a trading centre for many nations who visit by land and by sea. Ludenwick's growth was driven entirely by trade. Very quickly, this community seems to have been where residents of Essex, Kent, Sussex and Mercia could come and meet and trade goods. And it became a place of Christian faith, although it's a long and convoluted story. Basically, in the year 601, Missionaries sent by Pope Gregory the Great to convert the Germanics of Britain gained their first great success when the King of Kent converted. Now the initial plan was to have Ludenwick become the centre of the Christian faith in England, with the newly appointed Archbishop of England, Augustine, to be located there. Awkwardly at that exact moment, the overlord of Ludenwick was the King of Essex, a man named Sled and he was a rather proud pagan. And even if at that exact moment Schled of Essex was the vessel of the King of Kent, he seemingly did not wish to convert to the new faith, and certainly didn't want this new Archbishop of England turning up in his town. As a result, Kent was to become the focus of the Christian faith and the settlement of Canterbury, at least amidst the Germanic communities. Sled fortunately died soon after, and a new ruler of Essex takes the throne, again under the dominionship of Kent, and this one is more favourable 
towards the idea of converting to the Christian faith. And because of this, supposedly in the year 604, the High King, the Bretwalder, Ethelbert of Kent, erected the first version of the Cathedral Church of St. Paul's. We have a potential problem, however. We do not know if the current St. Paul's Cathedral is where the first ever St. Paul's Cathedral was erected. I mean, it could have been. If Ludenwick was this town beside the bend in the river, and the old Roman runes nearby were being used for community purposes, such as folk moots or keeping cattle, then it would make sense to place a church there. But we just don't know. After all, by 616, we know a new group of kings were in charge of Essex, and they returned to the old pagan ways, so the church may have been torn down. As such, the original precise location of St. Paul's remains a mini-mystery. We do know, however, that over the next few hundred years, one of these early versions was built atop Ludgate Hill, and in time that would become the St. Paul's that we know now. But here in the earliest era of Ludenwick, we just don't know for sure. Meanwhile, the market town and trade port of Ludenwick survived as around it the political situation changed. Do you remember what I said? Things always change. So, for example, the forces of Wessex and the forces of Essex clashed in the year 627, with those three pagan kings being killed and Essex under a new king, a guy called Sigilbert, not just returning to the Christian fold, but also being in charge of a kingdom that was diminished. Kent began casting a covetous eye upon London. But then East Anglia suddenly became the growing power in the land, and then a bit later, with the death of the Bretwalder, in 624, the geopolitical power of the nation shifted far to the north, where Northumbria became established as the dominant polity. It was a confusing mixture of personal ambition, religious aspiration, and ethnic rivalries, populated by people who just wanted to live their lives as peacefully as they could, I would imagine. Ludenwick, then, was a small but decent little community, a market growing steadily over the next few years and growing profitable, and as such, it was bound to grab the attention of the local despots and early kings in the surrounding regions. It was becoming a prize worth fighting for. Eventually, one of these early English kingdoms would claim it as theirs, and that claim would stick. And one did. But it wasn't Essex, or Wessex, or Kent. Rather, Ludenwick was about to be claimed by a nation whose significance is often overlooked and missed. We need to talk about Mercia. But we'll save that for the next part. Okay, that's the end of chapter 3. In the next chapter, we start adding some much-needed specificity as we explore how the Mercians took over the city-to-be. I hope you enjoyed this. I must say, this is the first time I've ever tried to do a podcast, and 
I will say that if in any of the previous issues there were problems with sound or sound levels or quality or anything like that, I do apologize. Um, whereas I'm pretty good at history, when it comes to technology, I am a bear of little brain. So forgive me, as I will try to improve as we go along. If you enjoyed this, please, if you could, leave a like or a five-star review or, I don't know, some positive affirmation to appease the algorithms. And I will see you next time for another chapter in the story of London. <laughs>